Father, we lift up uh, Marie to you. Lord, we are grateful that you are answering our prayer the way we asked it. Or, uh, that you are in the process of letting all those tumors shrink and go away. And we are very grateful for that because uh, we could sure use her um, here on the earth. As Paul said, to, yes, to die is a good thing, but to be here with us is much better because we need her help in the king, building the kingdom. And Lord, her and Tim are such powerful people. Continue to strengthen them and show them your grace. And Father, I pray for Julie and the leaders and the volunteers and uh, give them strength this week. I know by the end of the week they will be exhausted. Uh, just though They're going to pour it all out for you. So be with them and show them grace and strengthen them. Lord, I pray for the kids that are coming, that it would be a very uh, special time for them. And Lord, for those, especially those ones who are coming who aren't in church homes, the homes that don't know you, that perhaps this might be the time when they would learn about you and you would introduce, introduce yourself to them. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. So, so for the kids today, we have nursery through two years of age upstairs. Um, and then we have these great green bags that I will be bringing around. Um, and we have a family-friendly space across the hall that you're welcome to take your kids into. There's coloring pages and some toys and stuff in there. And for those that are in that back room already, glad you're there. Hi. They have a uh, live streaming back there. so You can still see and hear and, you know, be involved. So Great. Thank you. Okay, bye. <laughs> she couldn't wait to get off the stage. I've told her, give me a microphone and a thousand adults and I'm a happy guy. Give me 10 kids. And it's like, ha, ah. so, Well, we're in a series um, looking through Philippians, uh, talking about what is a servant's heart? What does that look like? Hopefully by now in the series, you're getting the idea that a servant's heart is as much about us as a church as it is about us as individuals. It's very common to talk about a servant's heart from the standpoint of what we each individually are producing. But yet the whole heart of Philippians, the whole core of this message is about producing something in us. Even Philippians 1.6, I've heard it applied so many times to your individual lives, which is true. It's good. That's not a criticism. For I am convinced of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will complete it or perfect it in Christ Jesus. Right? All right. We looked at the grammar of that. He who began a good work, singular, in you, plural. Philippians is about what is he doing in our church. Yes, your home churches, for those of you that are visitors, but what's he doing in our church right here at Dillon Community Church? What's he producing? As we've gone through the book, we're trying to answer the question, which we've been wrestling with all year. We started with Advent. And that is, if Christ died a countercultural death, what does that mean for us? What does a countercultural life look like for us, for us together? That's the question we've been wrestling with. We've approached it from a variety of angles. We talked about the idea that when the, the Jews were sent into exile back several hundred years before Christ, the reason they were sent into exile was because of sin. Every prophet talked about that. All the prophets, by the way, were written in that period of time, either just before or just after the exile of the two nations. And so they all talked about sin. This is why God's going to do it. He promised in Deuteronomy, at the end of Deuteronomy, that if you don't keep the law, if you sin, I'm going to kick you out of the land, dispossess you. And that's exactly what happened because of their sin. So they knew that their sin was the reason. 
So when they came back into the land, Ezra and Nehemiah records that. When they came back into the land, uh, they rebuilt the temple. We call that the second temple period. Um, the glory of the Lord did not return to the temple. So they knew, they knew that sin had not yet been dealt with. That's what happened at the cross. And at the cross, and Jesus coming to the earth, the glory of the Lord returned. John 1.14 And the Word became flesh, and the flesh, the Word, God, dwelt among us, and we beheld His... Fill in the blank. We beheld His what? His glory. The glory returned to the temple, but what a surprise... It wasn't the temple made of stones. It was the living temple, the spiritual temple, us. The exile ended. So Jesus' death was very countercultural. The exile ended, and here we are. We are now the people of God, living, thriving, active. And what does it mean to live a life as the people of God? Our lives should be just as countercultural as Jesus' life and death. And so... We're looking at Philippians, developing a servant's heart, because this is one of the key themes of this very book right here, is what does it mean for us to be a servant? Servant to whom? Right outside that wall right there. That's who we are to serve. We've already talked about not letting things like politics divide us. Right here in this room, man, we are split right down the middle. I'm not going to say where the middle is, because I don't, <laughs> don't want to say which party you belong to. But I've had, And we are split right down the middle on so many issues in our culture. And we talked about let's not let that divide us. We as a church have a higher calling. He's going to say at the end of this chapter, chapter 3, our citizenship is in heaven. I am thankful to be an American and to raise where I am. It has allowed me the freedoms to grow the way I've grown and the resources to travel overseas and teach all around the world, which I love. But I'm a citizen of heaven. And so we together are developing a servant's heart that should be felt and seen, observed, experienced by the people right outside these doors right here. So today we are in chapter 3, and we're looking at what does it mean to leave the past behind. This is a passage that's familiar to many of you. It's interesting that this particular passage, when you get into it, you're going to kind of say, well, how is this true? But this passage is a backbone passage in Christian theology. This lays the foundation experientially for what we believe in our doctrinal statements, what we say we believe. And we're going to talk our way through this. The very first thing he says, the beginning of this journey of leaving the past behind is to rejoice in the Lord. Chapter 3, verse 1. Further, my brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. It is no trouble for me to write these same things to you again, and it is a safeguard for you. So learning to rejoice is actually a part of the Christian maturing process. Paul says in the Thessalonian epistles, in everything give thanks, for this is God's will for you. In everything, not in most things, in everything, give thanks. And here he says, rejoice. 
It's not too hard for me to say this again. And it's a safeguard for you. This is part of the maturing process. It's a safeguard for us because we have to travel through a very broken and fallen world, don't we? Every one of you out here has experienced some kind of affliction, suffering, and maybe minor. Okay? Don't get caught up in the weighing, well, somebody else has it worse than I am. No, God has, God has called each of you to whatever He wants you to go through. Some of you may give your life. Some of you may not. Some of you may go through great suffering. Some of you may just be embarrassed by people around you. That may be mock you a little bit because you're Christianity. I can't dictate that. But what I can tell you is every one of your journeys is designed for you. Every one. I've said before, when we've talked about in the last series, evangelism, don't ever be afraid to talk about Christ. This culture doesn't know who he is. They think they know who he is, but they don't. All they know is a stereotype that they get from their experiences in the media. They don't know who he is, and you don't have to worry. Uh, every, I think every Christian's panic is, I'm going to get that person that can out-argue me and out-think me and box me in the corner. You're probably not going to get that. I get those guys. Okay? I do, but I've trained for that. I've watched now for 40 years as a Christian, and what I've noticed is astounding. God brings into your life who he, he needs you to be who you are in their lives, whatever that is. So you don't have to worry. Maybe you might get one or two people that can out-argue you. Okay, just laugh and say, boy, those are good questions. I don't know the answer. I'll figure them out later and move on. You see, I love those people. I'm wired for that. You don't have to worry. God's going to bring in your life. You have to offer what those people need that God routes your way. And so the whole concept of rejoicing in the Lord is a safeguard. It really is a safeguard. It's what keeps us keeps us centered, what keeps us focused. When we start wandering off into grumbling, complaining, dividing, gossiping, all those things, we're, we're just leaving the main path, and we're moving down alleys that are blind, dark, and quite honestly, hard. Hard to navigate. Hard to navigate. Developing a rejoicing heart is what keeps us focused. It is. It's what helps us to endure. Yeah, it is. And you've been through all that, and you know what I'm talking about. So what does he mean when he says to write the same things again? Well, in Philippians 2, 17 and 18, look what he says there. He actually, we actually saw this last week at the end of the passage. Philippians 2, 17 and 18. But even if I am being poured out like a drink offering on the sacrifice and service coming from your faith, I am glad and rejoice with all of you, so you too should be glad and rejoice with me. So he just finished this long passage where he talked about Christ, and he introduced the passage by saying, I don't know if I'm going to live or die. To die is gain, but to be with you is much better. To live is Christ. God has not asked most of us to die for him. He's asked most of us to live for him. To be right here in the middle of what we're doing and to whatever that looks like, suffering, as he said, living or dying, just rejoice in the middle of it. So he finishes that. But then he goes on and he, he mentions Timothy and Epaphroditus. Listen to the joy that emanates from these two stories. We didn't cover them last week, but this is the introduction to today. I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, that I also may be cheered, encouraged. So there's one of those reasons why we stay in fellowship, to be encouraged when I receive news about you. I have no one else like him who will show genuine concern for your welfare. Wow, boy, we could spend a long time just on these few verses. The theology of I have no one else that is genuinely concerned for your welfare 
not their own. For everyone looks out for their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know that Timothy had proved himself, because as a son with his father, he had served with me in the work of the gospel. I hope, therefore, to send him as soon as I see how things go with me. And then he goes right from there to Epaphroditus. But I think it necessary to send back to you Epaphroditus, my brother, co-worker, and fellow soldier, who is also your messenger, so he's apparently taking the letter, who sent you, who you sent to take care of my needs. Now remember, he's in prison. And in prison in the Roman system, they didn't feed you or take care of you. They weren't going to spend a penny on you. They lock you up, but if you die, you die. It's your issue. You were reliant on friends. So this church across the sea, they sent Epaphroditus to help take care of him. For he longs for all of you in his distress because you heard he was ill. Indeed, he was ill. He almost died. Now that's sacrifice. It was not a safe world to be in, by the way. They didn't have all the antibiotics and medical things that we have today. He almost died. But God had mercy on him, and not on him only, but also on me, to spare me sorrow upon sorrow. Therefore, I am all the more eager to send him, so that when you see him again, you may be glad, and I may have less anxiety. So then welcome him in the Lord with great joy. Boy, you see how joy is permeating I said a couple different times, we could organize Philippians along several different themes. I chose to organize it along servanthood. But what's behind all this servanthood is a faithfulness, a willingness to sacrifice, an expression, a regular, constant expression of joy, knowing that whatever the Lord is bringing in your life, it is not an accident. That's why I've asked many of you on this road, this journey, is your faith able to handle what you're about to go through? That's an important question that you need to answer. Whatever God puts in your path, is your faith able to handle it? It's there for a reason. We saw in chapter 1 that suffering is an example of God's grace. So now he tells the Philippians in his first verse that they should rejoice. You know, this is actually in keeping with the Old Testament. Think about these verses out of Psalm, Psalm 32, 11. Rejoice in the Lord and be glad, you righteous. Sing, all you who are upright in, in a heart. By the way, we could have picked hundreds of verses. I just picked two. Or Psalm 33. Sing joyfully to the Lord your righteousness. It is fitting for the upright to praise Him. Sing joyfully. That should describe your heart. So if you find yourself kind of caught, discouraged, down, come talk to one of us. They just rejoice. I'm going to work with you, any of us will, and say, what's the obstacle? What's the challenge in the way that's keeping you from saying, this is good? Some of you that have gotten cancer, I've asked the question of, if the Lord came to you before you got cancer, or you'd fill in the blank whatever it is he's going to do, if he came to you and said, next year at this time, you're going to be very sick. And the reason why I'm doing this is... You fill in the blank. Your child needs to learn about the Lord. Your spouse maybe needs to hear about Jesus. Uh, Your good friend who doesn't know Christ yet, this is going to be the way it's going to get their attention. What would you say? Would you be willing to go through that? I have a feeling most of you would. Then why on earth do we start getting angry when it happens to us? Just because God doesn't tell us what he's doing. 
He just doesn't tell us what he's doing. Okay, and then he goes into this next passage. I love what the NIV does. And as I read several commentators, they kind of scratch their heads as well, wondering why they did it the way they did it in all your other modern translations. Watch out for those dogs, those evildoers, those mutilators of the flesh. Watch out for those dogs, those evildoers, those mutilators of the flesh. When you actually read it, which most of you cannot, I'm sorry, in Greek. uh, By the way, you have to know Greek to get into heaven. (laughs) Just letting you know, right, Judy? My peer over here. If you haven't had Greek, you you haven't had Greek, you have to do two years of Greek. That's called purgatory. Okay? (laughs) Some of us have had the privilege of having much more than that, or the stupidity. I'm not sure which it is, but we love it, don't we? All right, here's what he says. This is three warnings in a row. Watch out for those dogs. Watch out for those evildoers. Watch out for those mutilators of the flesh. I mean, he repeats it three times the warning. They try to soften it here. This is a very strong warning, which is such an abrupt change from what he just said. Rejoice in the Lord. All of a sudden, he gives this incredible warning. Watch out for those who distort the gospel. You know, it's interesting. When, you, when we look in Galatians... He says a lot more about a group we call Judaizers. These Judaizers were Christians, Jewish Christians. They're following Paul all around. And they're saying, yeah, believing in Christ and what Christ did on the cross is good. That's right. But you also need to keep the law. Specifically, one of their key tenets was circumcision. You need to be circumcised. So in Genesis 17, the Israelite men had to be circumcised. That was a requirement to belong to the people of God. That was a sign of the covenant. You notice... uh, that it was a sign that was required of the men. That's actually important. At that time in history, so now we're going back several thousand years, at that time in history, uh, the men pretty much controlled and dominated everything. And some of you may say, well, that's true today too. No, no, no. No, nothing like today. Women, you were property. Children, you were property. Slaves, which we don't have, you were property. The men could do whatever they wanted. So God started with the men and said, it's important for you to have the sign of the covenant. It's interesting that two things. Number one, that he chose circumcision as the sign of the covenant. And what's intriguing to me is Paul stands up proudly and says, I've been circumcised. I can't picture any of us doing that up here on the stage. (laughs) But that's what he says in the verse coming up. That was a badge of honor. That was a badge of honor. That's partly what it meant to be Jewish. So Paul, in Galatians, begins to talk about these Judaizers as in, forms of, in terms of a different gospel. Where did he get this idea? Especially in light of Genesis 17, where it says this is a perpetual sign. You're to do it generation after generation. You see, he understood the intent of the Old Testament. I'm going to read Deuteronomy here. Deuteronomy 10, verse 16. Circumcise your hearts, therefore, and do not be stiff-necked any longer. This is in Deuteronomy. This is when they're standing on this side of the river. They haven't even entered the promised land yet. And God is already telling them the true intent for what circumcision was all about. Do not be stiff-necked any longer, for the Lord your God is God of gods, Lord of lords, the great God, mighty and awesome, who shows no partiality, and he accepts no bribes. He defends the cause of the fatherless and the widow, loves the foreigner residing among you, giving them food and clothing. That's Deuteronomy 10. 
And then we go on from there to Jeremiah 4. This is toward the end. This is uh, right during the period of the uh, exile. So now we're uh, many, many, many years later. Hundreds and hundreds of years later. Circumcise yourselves to the Lord. Circumcise your hearts, you people of Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem. We could have chose other verses. I just picked these two. You see, circumcision was symbolic. It was an outward symbol of a much deeper commitment and looked forward to a time when God would transform their hearts. That's called the new covenant. Paul understood that the presence of the Spirit among the Gentiles um, was irrefutable proof that they're now part of the kingdom. It wasn't based on circumcision. I can't imagine what the early church, the early Jewish believers, what they went through. We capture this in just a few short verses in Acts 10, 11, 15, the first church council, Jerusalem. We capture it in there. But if you've been taught your entire life that these things are absolutely critical in your relationship with God, keeping the law, circumcision, and all that, and then all of a sudden you have Gentiles in your midst who have the Spirit of God. The evidence was there because they're speaking in tongues. And you have to decide and figure out, wow, what was that all about? How did that happen? Uh, Mark has said many times from up here, I've heard him, that that was, a, that was an incredible period of time in the church. We can't even begin to imagine the wrestling they went through to make sense of that. Talk about going against all your traditions. All of your emotions and feelings. And yet that's what they had. And Paul knew that, that they were included. So he had all of these clues. So when he goes back and says, beware of these people, these dogs, these mutilators of the flesh. He's saying something very, very important here. It's also interesting that circumcision was originally given to the men. And then as time moves on, as is, keeping, as is in keeping with the church... We moved away from male dominance because the spirit went to everybody and that replaced circumcision, men and women alike. And when Peter stood up there, I don't know what it was like on Pentecost when he stood up and he said, your sons and your daughters will prophesy and dream dreams. Oh, what he must, what he would have felt through the middle of that. Such a shift in everything he had been taught, and yet that's what happened. So then Paul goes on in Philippians 3.3, 3, and he identifies who the truly circumcised are. Watch out for those dogs, he says in verse 2, the warnings. Verse 3, for it is we who are the circumcision, we who serve God by his Spirit, who boast in Christ Jesus, and who put no confidence in the flesh. Three things that define what a circumcised person, a person whose heart is circumcised, right? We worship God and we serve Him by His Spirit. It's not possible to serve God without the Spirit. Some of you have come up and talked about, we'd like to see more of the Spirit in our church. I'm, I'm all about that. You know, I'm in, all in favor of that. But I've always turned around and asked the question, does that mean the Spirit's not here? And nobody would say No. We cannot do what we're doing. You couldn't feel what you felt today up here if the Spirit wasn't present. The second thing is he talks about we who boast in Christ Jesus. That's a word that also means glory. We glory in Christ. We boast in Christ. In other words, he's introducing a new concept which is about to expand that we find our true significance in the Messiah.
in the Messiah. I know sitting right here in this congregation are very successful people. Some of you I know your stories and others I don't. But I know we are very privileged. Sometimes when I get up here to preach and I look at who our visitors are, especially out in the amphitheater, and you would be astounded if you could see through my eyes who's sitting in our audience. People that are very successful. But he's introducing a real simple concept here. Our boasting is in the Messiah, the King, Jesus. We put no confidence in the flesh. None. If human achievement could accomplish salvation, Paul would have already had it. Look what he says in verse 4. Though I myself have reasons for such confidence. I love it. If someone else thinks that they have reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have even more. You may have been a mid-level manager. I was a vice president. That's what he's saying. You may have been a successful business owner. Maybe you did 30 million in revenue. I did 500. Maybe you have a small company that you have investors. I own a, I, I'm the president of a publicly traded company. That's what he's saying here. He has much more reason to boast. If someone else thinks they have reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day, there it is. I've been circumcised. I love that he stands up in front of a church of mostly Gentiles that haven't been circumcised. I just think it's wonderful. I've done it. Well, my parents did it. I have more. <laughs> no, I have circumcised of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. So he has an advantage related to his birth. But then look what happens. Now he's going to talk about his accomplishments in regard to the law of Pharisee. As for zeal, persecuting the church. It's as good as it gets. As for righteousness based on the law, faultless. And then with a surprising turn here in the passage, he shows us how worthless all these things are. All these things are worthless. Look in verse 7. Whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. The very best accomplishments mean nothing to the Lord. They mean nothing. Listen to Isaiah 64. All of us have become like one who is unclean. All of our righteous acts, no matter how good they are. Now we're getting down to the very core of Christian theology. All of our righteous acts, they're like filthy rags. Some of your translations that you're reading right now are like menstrual rags. Because that's what they were. We just softened it a little bit here. We all shrivel up like a leaf, like the wind, our sins sweep us away. And then Paul recognizes this in Romans 3. Here's what he says about us. There is no one righteous, except for one or two. That's not what he says, does he? There's no one righteous, not even one. There's no one who understands. There's no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There's no one who does good. Not even one. That's his conclusion before he introduces Jesus. You see, it doesn't matter how good you think you are. Who's the one that assigns value to what you do? 
the Lord. This is his indictment, not mine. These are strong words, aren't they? This is the very core of Christian theology right here. So Paul, now in verse 8, helps us understand what is truly good. In verse 8, So what is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider all this past stuff to be garbage so that I may gain Christ and be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, through faith in the King. Remember, Christ just means the anointed one. The kings were always anointed. We have faith in the King. The righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. I want to know Christ. That's His goal. Everything He set it behind Him, leaving it behind this is what we mean by leaving the past behind. I want, to know, um, I want to know Christ. I want to know the King. Yes, to know the power of His resurrection, the participation in His sufferings, becoming like Him in His death, and so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. He just said he didn't know how he was going to get there. He didn't know if he was going to die or live, be let out of prison, be executed. He didn't know any of that. But somehow he's going to get there. And so it's not hopeless. That's his point. It's not hopeless. In exchange for giving up our human conditions, we gain Christ. That's what we get. This is the very core of Christianity. There's not a thing you can do. That's why it's called faith. That's the reason. It's not a thing you can do. We have to drop the notion that we are partners with God in the salvation process. Is that hard for you? To really truly believe that we are not partners in the salvation process. We are partners after the salvation process, but not in the process of salvation. It is God and God alone. The overall point of these verses is to draw a comparison between Paul before he was a Christian and the Judaizers who are all arguing that you have to do something. Okay, He's drawing a comparison between that and where we stand with Christ today. Just as Paul had rejected his own past, The Philippians, he's encouraging them to reject the gospel. That is not true. And the same is true for you today. Whatever accomplishments you've accomplished, they really don't mean anything. Not in an internal scheme of things. They don't. Now, they may gain different... we'll We'll come back to this a little bit later in the book. They gain some significance once you are in a relationship with the Lord. Now they mean something. But certainly not in that process of salvation. These are very hard words. You see, righteousness from God comes solely from God. The righteousness that comes from God comes only from Him. Any attempt to add by way of human intervention is to be rejected. 
It's a false gospel. That's Paul's argument in Romans, Galatians, and we have it here in very subtle form. So what is the gospel? What is it? The gospel is very simple. God loves his entire creation so much. So much. That he'll do whatever it takes, short of violating your free will, to get you to turn to him alone as God. That's the gospel. That's the gospel. He loves this entire creation so much, each one of you. And he is tapping on your shoulder, whispering in your ear constantly. One of the privileges of being a Christian for 40 years is I now recognize God's voice and his fingerprints where many of the people I talk to around the county do not. He's already evolved in their life. Three things you, you can be sure of with every human. And by the way, this is true of your children as well. Okay, three things. Number one is God loves them infinitely more than you do. It's a guarantee. Number two, he has been more intimately involved in their lives than you ever will be. And number three, he has a whole lot more experience with whatever sin they're struggling with than you'll ever have. That's confidence. You can relax. Sometimes your children take the wandering journey, the scenic view to the Lord. Some take the short version. Some take the, let him take the scenic view. Let him take it because when they get there, they're going to rejoice in the Lord. They are. I've discovered that people have two journeys to get to Christ and the way we respond to them are different. There are those who are saved out of a life of something. You know my journey. I was saved out of immorality, drugs and all that. I'm so grateful to be rescued from that. And then I come across Christian children who didn't have that experience and it seems like their faith is sometimes a little cool. They don't have the same passion. Well, that's a conundrum because we don't want to send them back to do drugs. Right? I'm grateful for the children in our churches that don't have to go through that. So their journey is a little different. They have to understand what they avoided. I know what I was rescued from. Those of you that were raised in Christian homes need to understand what you avoided. You want to get a good taste of what that is? Go surf it. Go serve in an AIDS hospice. I have. Go serve in a soup kitchen to drug addicts. And just get close to sin, up close and personal. It's called vicarious experience. I don't want you to go through drugs and all of that. But it sure is helpful if you understand what you avoided. This is what we're talking about here in this passage. All right. So, what accomplishments are you holding on to? They make you feel pretty good about yourself. And make it a challenge to let go. To serve the Lord. What are they? I have some closing thoughts. This uh, challenging passage, and yes it is a very challenging passage, stands as a warning to all who think they can find peace with God. Peace with God without submitting to the Christian gospel. In other words, they think they can find peace with God by relying on their own accomplishments. It's not possible. Paul's crystal clear. Hard words, but true words. 
This also stands as a warning not to become too enamored with the qualities that the fallen world considers important. Yes, it is important to be responsible. I am grateful that some of you have been CEOs and doctors and all those things that are accomplishments. But don't become too enamored with them that they get in the way. Thirdly, because we live in an era in which many have been, uh, how do I say it, deeply scarred by the church. By the way, this is the norm for me as I go around the county and talk to young people, sitting in coffee shops, bars, restaurants. It's a stunning thing to me how many of them have had an exposure to faith, and yet they got hurt somewhere along the way. And they tried to reject the whole thing. I was with a young man not too long ago. And we're sitting there with three or four of us. And right in the middle of nowhere, we're sitting over pugs having a drink. And he said, so, you're a pastor. What's wrong with me sleeping with my girlfriend? These are the, past- these are the questions pastors get. Okay, what's he expecting me to do? Be your traditional pastor. Well, the Bible says blah, 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 blah. So he said, so what's wrong with me sleeping with my girlfriend? And I said, dude, you can't let it go, can you? Last thing he expected. What do you mean? I said, you can't let it go. People don't just walk up and ask me that kind of question. What happened in your past that somebody communicated that to you and you can't let it go? And he just stopped and he said, well, he was raised in a church environment and the leader of the church canceled the youth group to save money to invest into better decorations in the building. And it just torqued him off. And I said, boy, I get that. I'd be torqued off too. I said, are you guilty of throwing the baby out with the bathwater? She goes, what do you mean? I said, you're so angry over your religiosity, what happened in church, that you're throwing out your faith. You're attempting to throw out your faith at the same time. And he goes, yeah. And that really ticks me off that you just said it. (laughs) And I said, well, for what it's worth, it's making me laugh. I said, don't throw out the baby with the bathwater. Learn how to separate true spirituality from religiosity. We have hurt many people. Let's be honest. Let's don't hide that fact. Many of you have been hurt by a past church experience. Okay, guess what? Yeah, the church is full of hypocrites. A hundred percent of us. That's the reality of it. Own up to it. When this church, I don't go to church because they're full of hypocrites. Go, yep, you're right. I'm one of them. Sure enough. Almost every week. Wish I wasn't. It's amazing how that breaks down the barrier, just to be honest. And so what we have to do is we have to help them see what true redemption looks like in the context of grace. That's what it means. That's a challenge that we have. Especially in this county where only 7% go to Protestant churches. But it's a fun challenge. To sit with these people and help them differentiate between religiosity and spirituality. And yes, over and against our fallen culture, and no matter what the media says, yes, Christianity does hold the truth to human nature. It's right there. We are different. We are so vastly different from every other religion, that there's no real way to compare. We are vastly different. Hopefully that builds confidence. It doesn't mean you beat people over the head with it. 
It just means that you can understand why they struggle the way they struggle on their journey. That's what it means. Because you're learning the truth. You're learning the truth about human nature. Okay, next week is Philippians 3. Second half of Philippians. Where we're going to talk about what does it mean to live into the future? What does that look like? Being a church that's a serving church is a lot of hard work. I've included every sermon this way. Are we a church that's learning to be a serving church? Or are we a bunch of churchgoers? It's a very big difference. Father, thank you for your goodness. Thank you for your love for us. Thank you for your love for this entire world. Your self-sacrificing love that you're willing to part with your son. And Jesus, thank you that you are willing to die for us. This entire world. All of creation. You love it so much. It really is very good. And thank you for... uh, Thank you for spelling out in your word the truth not so that we can hurt people with it but so that we can have compassion and understand why people struggle the way they do help us lord to continue to grow finish that good work in us that you've started keep growing us to be more like you that's our prayer in your son's name amen good ask